Hello and welcome to episode 23 of The Professor and the Hack with me, Catalina Flores. I'm sitting in the, the hack chair, which is usually filled by P, uh, Hugh Remington, I should say, where I'm joined with uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen. How are you going? I'm very well. Thanks for having me back. Episode 23, that's Michael Jordan's number, just as an FYI. Shane Warne as well, but who cares about that? <laughs> um, um, I feel like you want to start this podcast with sport. Am, am oh, I right, Pepeo? <laughs> do I ever. I know you don't want to talk about sport. You were at pains to tell me that before we started, but let me have this rant. And I say this not as a Raiders supporter. I don't have any skin in the game on the Roosters versus the Raiders, but what a joke. The referees absolutely decided the grand final of the NRL in 2019. Not only did you have a scenario where the a trainer was hit by a ball that probably would have led to a try by the Raiders, which the Roosters then scored on the next play anyway, that was the way that was handled was bad, even if the rule wasn't that there should have been a penalty. How can there not be? They have to change the rule. But then right at the end, oh, and by the way, all this whinging from Roosters supporters about Cooper Cronk getting put in the sin bin, it should have also been a penalty try. I mean, he literally tackled a guy before he got the ball and that guy is twice his size and would have scored. And then right at the end, the referee signals six again and then changes his mind. What does he think? That the Raiders playmaker who's got the ball on the fifth tackle, other than the six again call, is supposed to run, evade, kick, and spend the whole time just looking at the referee in case the guy decides to change his mind? It was embarrassing. And, of course, then the Roosters scored off that play as well. The game was literally decided by the officials, and that's such a crying shame because it was a good game. Don't adjust your headphones. You are listening to a political podcast. No, it was just <laughs> like it, my blood was boiling watching it. Can you imagine how the supporters feel? Our bureau chief down in Canberra, Tim Sweeney, is a, a huge Raiders fan. I'm glad I have not been in the same city uh, over the course of the 48 hours since that happened. Oh, my God. Like, he must be beyond himself. Anyway. I think I understand the outrage, but I can contribute absolutely nothing to this um, conversation. Um, well, yeah, you must have seen the papers. <laughs> oh, and then, and then it gets the better. Other. The NRL stuffed it up so badly, we see in today's Daily Telegraph, that the award, the Clive Churchill medal that goes to the best on ground, they told uh, the prop for the Roosters that he'd got this because they hadn't had all the votes come in yet at that moment in time. And then when all the votes came in, it swung around to the 5-8 for the Raiders. So this bloke, I mean, he doesn't care, he won a premiership, but you've got this Roosters prop being told officially that you've won the Clive Churchill medal only to have it stripped from him because these guys didn't check the app appropriately to work out if all the judges had put their judging in yet. Can you believe it? The little that I know about NRL, it always comes with controversy. So what's the NRL without controversy? Well, I mean, I guess compared to some of their controversies, this is low-hanging fruit, isn't <laughs> That's it? That's true. I mean, my Lord. But anyway, we'll, we, we'll move on. We'll move on. I know that you <laughs> don't want to digress. talk anymore about this. We're three minutes yeah, in. Yeah, three minutes in. This is too much for me, PBO. Look, I wanted to take the opportunity, given that it's about five months since the election, to just... Uh, take a step back from the day-to-day politics and, and take stock of where things are at. Uh, and the reason five I months am, since the election? It's almost, almost five months. You would have thought the government would have done something by now. <laughs> they might take uh, umbrage <laughs> with that. But, <laughs> now, the reason I ask is because I went to a, a press conference, a prime ministerial press conference mm. recently, and I realised that I hadn't been to one um, since the election, during the election actually, and I just noticed a real change in the Prime Minister's demeanour, in the way that he carries himself. A confidence, you mean? A huge amount of confidence and obviously... He was confident enough not to answer your questions, I remember that. Well, that's right, yeah. I was, I was <laughs> He's always been that. confident if that's the case. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was going to get to that. But no, I think it's it's just his body language, the way he mm. moves, the way he conducts himself in press conferences and as he, you know, answers or doesn't answer questions. And I mean, it's nothing like a, an election victory to give you that confidence, but I'm really sensing that. It, over the last five months, you've obviously been to plenty more Prime Minister press conferences than me in that time. Have you found that he's kind of found his feet? Yeah, I certainly noticed on the US trip um, that he had a level of confidence there. I, I think he always sought to project confidence. So maybe it wasn't so much before that that, that he was lacking it or at least lacking the persona of it, and perhaps it was more that all of us assembled would just assume that this guy's the temporary PM, so therefore look at him trying to paper over the problems, you know. But maybe it was more us than him, I guess, is is what I'm suggesting in that. But certainly he does come across much more sure-footed and confident now uh, in batting away questions as well mm. as in how he chooses to answer the ones that he chooses to answer. Uh, but he needs to be careful. I mean, the, the whole government needs to be careful that they don't become overconfident. You know, I, I can see, I, look, you know, with my predictive track record, I'm sure Scott Morrison will love this. I do think he will win the next election. You can oh, take that to the bank. There you go. Uh, but, but, but if he's not going to, if he doesn't, It'll it'll be for similar reasons to the hubris that said in, in the Howard years after 04. Uh, he doesn't have anywhere near the majority that Howard had after he beat Mark Latham in 04, yet he still lost in the one electoral cycle. Uh, he doesn't control the Senate like Howard did, that is true, but there is this euphoric sense of Labor is down and out, we're on fire, we're doing well. They've got all sorts of problems, including in relation to where their policy settings go from here. That can turn around surprisingly quickly uh, in modern politics. We saw that with Labor when they, you know, not only got into the hubris of the Howard years, which included work choices. I don't think Scott Morrison or the Coalition have to worry about that. I don't see him actually putting an ideological agenda of significance in place, which has the risk of also being unpopular. He's not that kind of presiding leader. But they've only got 77 seats. So if the opposition gets something resembling their act together, asking for a fourth term which is what the government will be doing, is never an easy task. And their hope, I guess, will just be that because Scott Morrison is a relatively new Prime Minister, voters don't really twig to the fact that this is a government seeking a fourth term and then see how much they have or haven't done for that long in government. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but the speech from the Prime Minister recently about globalism and, and the need to protect Australia's interests and that kind of thing, obviously very patriotic, probably taking a, a leaf out of Donald Trump's book. Do you think that that's sort of going to, um, I guess, pepper his his leadership? Oh, look, I, I think it's all about... To, I mean, I hate to agree with Kevin Rudd on anything, but Kevin Rudd was critical of it. And I think in a policy sense, he's right in his criticisms. I just think in a political sense... What Rudd identifies as the motives for Scott Morrison, which are domestic politics, will probably, by definition, work for Scott Morrison, at least in the short to medium term in terms of domestic politics. Rudd says that it's bad for him to, for the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to approach this the way that he does because we're a middle power and internationalism and the global order is something that middle powers tend to benefit from. Uh, in a wonky sense, yes, that is true. You know, as, as a scholar of international affairs, yes, Kevin Rudd is right. Um, but what's more interesting is that Rudd is dismissing what Morrison is doing as just about low-ordered domestic politicking. I don't doubt that's what it is, but I think that's going to work for him. So he might be wrong 
on the theoretical space of how Australia is best placed as a middle power to manage world affairs, but he's right in being wrong about that in the domestic political setting, potentially, at least in the short to medium term. Well, we know he's very effective in the way he speaks to the Australian public. People seem to listen and, and understand, which is a real hard thing to do. Um, but moving on to... I think we overstate that for, for what it's worth. I mean, I, I, I don't think... I mean, Scott Morrison did a good job at the election, and I do think you're right. I think that he does cut through in some of what he has to say, certainly when it comes to attacking the opposition. But he's a little bit like that footy team that wiped out the other team that's just not very good to start with. Beating Bill Shorten, you know, Bill Shorten is not exactly the most popular or charismatic figure in Australian politics and he never was. We all just assumed he was going to win anyway because of all the problems in the government. So Morrison's skill set, I think, was to paper over those problems, Mm. present reasonably, as you say, but I I wouldn't overstate that, Mm -hmm. and to then just rip down uh, somebody who really was there for the taking if Malcolm Turnbull could complete sentences with less than 450 words in it. Well, I guess, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, but also he was very good at um, at just at st- sticking, the discipline, mm. sticking to his line. Oh, yeah, frustrating journalists because yeah. we all, I mean, you know what it's like. <laughs> oh, we, it's we're completely all there, frustrating. We sit there and the same as people that, you know, the, the small number of people that, that watch 24-hour news, the sort of the insiders, if you like, to, to one extent or another, we all sit there and we see him just say the same thing over and over again, dismiss the questions that actually mean something. But that doesn't play out on the nightly news. You know, the nightly news is the people that have got better things to do with their lives uh, who just turn in, tune in briefly just to see what happened for a couple of minutes in politics at best. They're probably more interested in the sports story. So tragically, um, for us, tragically. <laughs> tragic. But, uh, you know, that that phenomena, he that's your point, I think, is mm. that's what he plays to, right? And, and he does well with doing that. Um, and that's why the insiders can find it a little bit frustrating. That's right. For the small amount of people who actually sort of marginally tune in and, and they hear that soundbite, that's all they hear. Yeah, it was like that. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of Bill Shorten, we saw that he sort of preempted this review into what went wrong at the election by taking ownership of the problems, the franking credits, and interestingly he said he doesn't want the leadership again but that he'll be he'll remain for about 20 years. What I'm do you sure make of all that? music to his colleagues' ears. I'm sure it is. I mean, he's behaved himself pretty well, hasn't he? Oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a coup coming anytime yeah. soon to go back to him. Yeah. But look, at one level, we don't see enough of this. Politicians that are prepared to be there for the long haul, they look to move on and make money or just get out of the game because it can be so brutal, whether it's, you know, the media coverage or just all that, that time away from family in Canberra. But uh, so at one level, it's nice to see someone who's prepared to spend a bit more time like Polly's used to hanging around. But, look, nobody can tell me that he doesn't have at least a a part of one eye still on the possibility of rejuvenating. You know, again, John Howard did a lot of us a disservice because his comeback gave every other, I'm not suggesting this is Bill Shorten, but every other half-wit that thinks that they've got the capacity to come back the belief that they too can do it. So, you know, he was Mr. 17%, famous front page of the bulletin, why does this man even bother, was the subheading that followed it. And, of course, then... Years later, bang, he's, uh, he's Prime Minister with a, a near-record majority against Keating. And then, of course, he lasted as Australia's second longest serving. So he was written off time and time again. Howard himself, when he got rolled in 89, declared that it would take Lazarus with a triple bypass mm. for him to come back. And, of course, that's then exactly what he did. He not only came back, but he spent years trying to come back uh, in the aftermath of, of all of that. So I, I, I don't doubt that Shorten has at least part of one eye on on the idea of him being able to Never say never would maybe be the way to put it. But if not, he's happy to be a downer, I think. You know, Mm -hmm. a a guy that didn't get there, failed as leader ultimately, but 
then served in a significant role in a in a government of his political stripes subsequently. Well, he came so tantalisingly close, you know, it's tempting not to, to keep an eye on it. Speaking of rejuvenating, though, we saw Tony Abbott was, uh, was saying that he would be happy to come back if the party <laughs> so wanted, and that's a be, big I if. would be happy to be US president. Uh, given that I've got US citizenship if America wants me. Um, <laughs> a but big I'm not, if. But yeah. I'm not holding my breath. I think he, he didn't say that, but he said words to that effect. You know, I'm not I'm not counting on it. But it's nice that he's keeping the door open, don't you think? That's I right, mean, that's right. Never say never. Never you know, say never. Voted out of your seat, removed by your own party less than a year into your first term as Prime Minister when the other mob had done the same thing, so you'd think your mob would have learnt from it. Never say never, Catalina. <laughs> Interestingly, PBO, you've worked for Tony Abbott for some time. Would you well, like when you to say see for some him... time? I worked for him for four months some time ago. For some time ago. <laughs> Nearly 20 years ago now, actually. Yeah. But not wanting to show my age. Would you like to see him personally back in Parliament? For the laughs or or, or, or for the policy settings? Um, oh, look, let me just say this. The thing about Tony Abbott is he, him and I were never close. I was, I, I was on his staff basically filling in for someone that was on study leave. Um, so he he wasn't even involved in the process of hiring me is my point. Mm. Um, but when he was there, when I was there rather, he's a great boss. I mean, a lot of people that don't like Tony Abbott, my line used to always be, if you don't like Tony Abbott, don't meet him because he'll change your mind. And then I'd often add to that, if you like Kevin Rudd, don't meet him. I'd agree. I'd agree because with Because he'll both change those your mind comments. too. Yep. Um, so he, he is very personable at that level. It's just that his public persona was so damaged. And I think near the end, the bitterness, and I can understand the bitterness of, of what Malcolm Turnbull did to him, uh, has become all-consuming for mm. Tony Abbott. So I get it, but I think it then started to change a person, as events can. Do I think he's coming back or would I like to see him come back? At its core, no. Uh, yeah, he's had his time. He's in his 60s. Uh, I think a lot of his views are increasingly out of step with mainstream Australia. Let's be frank about that. Uh, but And also, I, I would hazard a guess, in an anonymous vote, most of his colleagues wouldn't want him back either because he was destructive. And I think those colleagues would say the same thing about Malcolm Turnbull, by the way. So this isn't some anti-Abbott rant. It goes both ways. Uh, it's, and, and I think most of Labor's colleagues would say the same thing about certainly Kevin Rudd, possibly Julia Gillard as well, because of the same problems that the pair had uh, during their time when things got bitter, just as people would have said it in its day about Peacock and Howard, even though Howard ultimately came out of that one and Peacock never did. So no, I don't think Tony Abbott should be making a comeback. And guess what? I don't think there's any chance that he is. I think there's only one person that thinks that that's a dim possibility. That's him. Speaking of Prime Minister's past, and you mentioned him, Malcolm Turnbull has been speaking today about um, climate change. Mm. Uh, interesting that he's making these observations. I guess it's, you know, obviously he's been asked as part of these 75th anniversary um, sort of Troy articles. Troy Bramston's excellent articles in the Australian. We should give him a plug. That's right, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, does he have a point? Oh, look, I think he does, but I think any of us also have a point if we say he could have done more when he was Prime Minister. What happened? You know, and you could say the same thing about any other things, tax policy, you name it. He burnt, well, he didn't even burn his political capital. He had so much of it after he took out Abbott and then he just let it wane away, wither away, rather than actually doing something with it, like Howard did with introducing the GST or gun reform or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's got a point on climate change when he criticises his own side. I'm not sure that's his aim as opposed to just being a little bit destructive. Um, and even if it is his aim uh, to, to be constructive, and even if he's right, which I think he probably is, uh, it's also a truism that he could have done more when he was there. And, yes, he got rolled at the end on the National Energy Guarantee, so he was trying to do that. 
but he could have done more long before that mm. as well, but never went for it. So let's wrap up this sort of uh, quasi sort of, um, what's the word? Well, a bit of a look back and look, look back, forward. Look back and look forward with, uh, with the current Labor leader, Anthony Albanese. I mean, it seems to me he's being quite slow and steady in terms of, you know, his leadership and what he does. Obviously he's waiting for the review. How do you think he's sort of handled the last... Four and a half months. Oh, look, he's not putting them in an election-winning position, but but as you mentioned or allude to, that's quite deliberate because he's working on the assumption that the election won't be for at least another two years, so it's all about getting your timing right. And I think he's even used sporting analogies about how he wants to be in the contest in the last 10 minutes, not in the first 10 minutes of the first half. There's a slight fly in the ointment with that notion, which is that the government gets to choose the timing of elections so they can actually call early elections if they so choose. So he wants to be a little bit wary about that because I think to get the Senate and the House in sync, I could imagine Scott Morrison choosing, and also to move election timing to the end of the year, which is traditionally when parties like to have it, rather than towards the beginning of the year, much less mid-year. I could see an earlier-than-usual election happening maybe just over two years into the government's tenure. Uh, But... Um, I think he's right in a sort of, if you like, avoiding the sort of need to win the daily cycle sense. That's what mm. Bill Shorten did. You know, he, he took comfort from being ahead the whole time, mm. which meant that he had cold comfort when he fell behind in the in the only poll that matters, which was on election day. Well, we know he's got a very hard job pulling it back now, Anthony Albanese. We will take that opportunity to take a small break. Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully? I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack with Catalina Flores and Peter Van Onselen. PVO, we've seen some interesting figures about asylum seekers by plane. These are astronomical figures. Yeah, look, they are, and there's not a lot of attention on them, um, for I think, for different reasons until now. Uh, Labor's been trying to get this one up for a while now. Christina Keneally in the new role as, as Shadow Home Affairs has really been trying to ramp this one up as a almost a counter-attack to the government's ongoing attack against Labor for not stopping the boats when they, in, in fact, were able to do so when coming into power. So, yep, you know, I think boat arrivals surged by around 50,000 during the Labor years, and we all know about that. We all remember it with the amount of coverage that it got. The government managed to stop the boats. Uh, Labor likes to claim that they found a way to sort of participate in that just before the end when Kevin Rudd brought in the Pacific solution. But, you know, uh, there's conjecture around that. Either way, the government stop the boats. Uh, Labor now tries to echo most of those policy settings, but not quite all of them. What Labor's now trying to do is talk about plane arrivals. The argument is that the people smugglers have gotten more sophisticated and moved to the plane arena uh, where people come in uh, on visas, essentially, but then claim asylum once they get here. And it's interesting. The numbers suggest, I think it's since 2015, there's been around about 100,000 or nearly 100,000 people come by plane claiming arrival. Now, There's a few interesting parts to this. The first one is that boat arrivals are overwhelmingly genuine refugees. Uh, But for whatever reason, Australians, you know, don't agree with me for a start, because I'm a bleeding heart on this stuff, uh, that they should be allowed in when they're found to be genuine refugees because they came by boat. They skipped some theoretical queue that apparently is formed somewhere out there in the ether. So as a result, uh, you know, Australians don't like boat arrivals, even if they end up being found to be genuine refugees. These plane arrivals, which are, you know, twice as numerically significant, almost twice as numerically significant as boat arrivals and have been on the up and up, even though the government's at pains to tell us that this year versus last year, it is slightly down, even though it was at about 8,000 a year four or five years ago. Now it's closer to 30,000 a year. Mm. Uh, This figure 
uh, 90% of them are not genuine refugees. They get found to not be genuine refugees. Now, what we don't know is the exact numbers as of yet on how many of those found to not be genuine refugees end up getting sent back to their homeland. But there's a few things at play, which is what I find really interesting about this. It's the why. Why are they doing it? Now, they have to have paperwork to come here, which in the boat asylum seeker sense they don't. You know, they tend to not have their papers for either if you believe them because they got rid of them because they were being persecuted, if you don't believe them because they, uh, you know, threw them overboard to try to be able to claim asylum. Plane arrivals have to have that, obviously, to get through immigration. So they get through immigration with their visa, saying that they're from China or wherever it might be, and we do have stats on the numbers, China being one of the major ports. Uh, They arrive and then they claim asylum. Now, they get access to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal process, which is quite long uh, and arduous as a process. They get that access. It can take years. They get temporary work visas while they're over here. So there's a few different arguments about why people do this. Some people allegedly are being conned by people smugglers back in their homeland that they're actually going to get in if they do this. So they pay money and then they come across on the visa and claim asylum and it's a surprise to them that they're not eligible or that it's not automatic. Others know that they're not going to get the asylum, but they don't care. They do it to effectively have a couple of years of work in the temporary work visa, uh, and they either get exploited or they are exploiting work opportunities while they are here, one way or the other. And other people apparently just flee. So they put the application in, they hope for the best, but they don't really care. They're here, they lose their papers, we lose them, and they're just somewhere in Australia, never to be found again. This is the sort of triumvirate of reasons, apparently, why this happens. What I think is going to be interesting to find out is what Australians feel about it. Because Labor thinks they're on a political winner pointing this out, saying this is Mm. a problem. Stop looking at boats, which was always a tough one for us. That's been solved. We've got similar policies, the two major parties. Let's focus on plan arrivals where the government's failing us and has been doing so for years now. Do you think that's going to work for them politically or do you think people go, ah, it's different, it's not by boat and... You know, I don't know, it's off the radar or do you think that it can be a slow burn? I think it could potentially. I mean, it obviously clogs up the system and is a loophole and I noticed that Labor is really hammering the these are people who are taking Australians' jobs. So that's something that... could be a good angle, yeah. That's something that I think could resonate. But I think... I guess the the government will point out, and I'm not sure if this will have traction, the government will point out that the ones that came by boat actually died. These are people who don't have that risk of of dying by the journey. And I I think that's that's right. But personally I've always found that they die when they're coming here, therefore, you know, shame on you, Labor. I've always felt that that was more used as an argument than that Australians really cared as much about that. I think if you wanted to stop the boats, most people weren't doing so from a position of empathy. Yeah. They were doing it because they just wanted to have a hardline position on Border Patrol and that became almost a somewhat convenient argument to add to the mix, to take the high moral ground at the same time that you were being accused of taking the low moral ground by, mm. by mm. asylum seeker advocates. I think it's not going to be as powerful, to be honest, this this mm. uh, asylum seeker by plane. Just Different be- images as well, isn't th- it? Exactly, the imagery. I was just going to say, the imagery is so powerful when you see a boatload of, of refugees um, going overboard or whatever. Um, I think that's a lot different to, to people that you don't see coming via the normal channels. And it, it also removes or it makes it harder to run the argument that these people could be dangerous. You know, there was a lot of vilifying of yep. refugees coming by boat. They don't have papers. They could be... Well, Scott Morrison has talked about there could be murders, murderers, pedophiles, rapists. You know, he's he said all of that. Those mm. were his words. So there's a bit of fear-mongering that goes with it when they come by boat and you don't have access to paperwork. If the Australian Border Patrol and Customs lets somebody in, even if it's on a visa for 
for a holiday and they end up exploiting that by trying to get asylum when they're not perhaps valid for it, they were still deemed to not be a criminal to be able to get through the process because they wouldn't have got entry on that temporary visa if they had a criminal record or whatever it might be. So I think mm. for a lot of Australians that makes these people, if I could put it this way, less scary to them yeah. than, than boat people might be seen as being, whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but the jobs one that you mentioned, I think that that is perhaps one that has more chance of resonating depending on where the debate goes from here. I think so. As a side note, I was in um, Venezuela uh, a couple of months ago now just looking at the, actually on the Colombian side of the border, looking at the amount of refugees that were come, that literally walking across the border, tens of thousands, 24 hours a day walking across the border because of the situation in Venezuela. And as someone who obviously is Australian and, and um, grew up here with a Colombian heritage, I should say, um, it, it was interesting to to me to, to see that, that, ama- that amount mm. of human traffic compared to what we are normally used to in terms of refugees, which is a handful of people coming by boat. I mean, obviously there's a lot more now with the, with the plane loads, but I just thought it was an interesting... Um, well, it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It's absolutely. the same as the Mexican border with the US. I mean, whatever your view on asylum seekers, these are real numbers yeah. of significance, whereas even at its maximum, you know, we're an island continent, okay. so... Arrivals here, even at its worst, was nothing in comparison to that. Absolutely. Moving on, we know Parliament is returning for a couple of weeks next week. What do you imagine will dominate? I know big stick legislation has already had a bit of a a go this week with the energy companies not happy about it. What do you think will dominate? Well, I I think a lot of it will be the economy. Uh, And both sides, interestingly, I think both sides will feel happy to muscle up on that. You know, Labor wants to wrestle back a little bit of uh, control in the economic space and a little bit of voter trust because they don't have much of it at the moment. So they're really keen to do that. And so, you know, declining interest rates, signs of uh, domestic slowdown, they, you know, jobs being taken from by, by plane arrivals feeds into this as well with the unemployment rate, according to the RBA, a little bit too high. All of these things are things that they're going to want to try to push and they may, may even try to go after the banks a little bit as part of suggesting that the government's too in the pocket of corporates or, or has a do-nothing attitude to, to the corporates. And, of course, debt having doubled on the government's watch, even though the budget is apparently going to return to surplus. So Labor wants to go in that direction, I think, uh, even though it's been a weakness for them. They want to try to reverse that. The government, I think, is happy to have the debate in that space because their view is that we're the better economic managers on paper according to opinion polls uh, and... If it's good economic times, well, then we crow about it. But even if it's bad economic times, which it increasingly is looking like it is, they are happy to have that debate because their argument is voters trust us more than they trust Labor. So I think that'll be a very dominant theme during the sitting fortnight. We've only got, I think, four weeks of sittings left before the end of the year. There's one Senate that, right. week yeah. on top of that, I think. But mm. there's not many to go. Uh, so this sitting fortnight that's coming up after the school holiday recess, essentially, uh, is going to be an important political one in terms of where the momentum is going into the summer recess. I've found interesting the language that the Prime Minister had on uh, the banks and uh, the profiteering and then how it pivoted to Labor saying that they would increase the bank levy but the government wouldn't go that far. So I guess it comes back to the government proving that they're a little bit hollow when they're talking about the banks but when it comes to acting, it's they're, they're dragging their feet. Yeah, I talked about this last week. I did my column on it as well. It's... it's um There's a lot of rhetoric from both sides, in fairness, when it comes to doing something about the banks and interest rates, but they don't really achieve much out the other side of it, notwithstanding having had a Royal Commission. So, you know, they can't compel the banks to pass on uh, 
cuts to the interest rate, even when the cash rate does come down. The banks try to argue that you know there are restraints you know, and, and difficulties with the, the lending environment. Sorry, but you know when you look at what their profits are, coupled with um, the fact that uh, that that they're some of the more profitable banks in the world, as well as some of the bigger banks in the world relative to our national size, uh, they they could certainly pass those cuts on. I mean, they they use it as a chance to gouge between how they pass on the interest rate cut versus how they affect. Uh, their, you know, what, what they pay for people with savings accounts and they make money out of it on the margins. That's what they do. That's their whole raison d'etre when it comes to managing these interest rate cuts or increases. And there's some classic data on it. You know, during the life cycle of the, of the current coalition government, there have been seven interest rate cuts, okay? On only one of those seven occasions have all four of the big banks passed on the interest rate cut in full and it was the first of those seven way back in 2015, I think it was. The following six, occasionally one big bank passed on the full amount, but never, not once of those six most recent times have all four done it. In contrast to that, over the previous however many years, uh, I think over the, I think it was over the previous ten years, there were seventeen. There were also interest rate cuts, but there were seventeen interest rate increases at one point in time or another. And guess how many times across those seventeen, all four of the big banks passed on the interest rate increase. All every 17. single time, every single bank, yep. every single time. So you know this idea that oh the lending environment is such that we you know can or can't do this or that. Well, sorry, but that's crap. That's utter crap. It's hard not to be cynical, but I think you know, uh, and this has been talked about. Customers, Australian customers, are so loyal, so they allow this to happen in a sense. Well, loyal or lazy, <laughs> uh, to be perfectly frank. And the government's been trying to make it easier to be able to switch. Uh, your home loan or whatever it might be, and that has had some small effect at the margins. But, yeah, they're, they're, their loyalness is born out of laziness and busyness, I think. You know, people have their set up, you know, they have everything conglomerated in, credit cards, all sorts of other elements to their banking. They're used to the particular app of the bank that they use or where the ATMs are, even though you can now use any ATM without a fee across the big four. And, of course, the big four have such market share dominance versus in other countries that even if they tried to shop around beyond the big four, there aren't really that many providers. Uh, and their ability to give loans mean that you have to go through the paperwork process, showing your income. You know, you can just imagine. The whole thing's just so painful. And and the, the cost of it or the benefit of it in getting a lower rate, it's there and it's real and you do get it, but you don't sort of feel it as significantly as you might notice it at the end of a 30-year home loan where if you'd done it, you might have saved $30,000 or $60,000 even uh, with the differential between the pairing. But it doesn't feel that way on a daily basis when you've got a million other things to do and get dinner for the kids and you look mm. over and you think, oh, God, do I really want to go through this process? True, true. Well, it promises to be an interesting two weeks of Parliament nonetheless. I know last time, BVO, you ended the podcast with a recommendation. I've got one of my own. Okay. I don't know if you've seen it. It was from Studio 10, Anthony Albanese, um, recreated a scene from Lady in the Tramp with Denise Dreister. I did. So this is the spaghetti. This is the spaghetti. What did you make of it? Oh, well, the, the part that I noticed the most was that they were gobbling in the spaghetti <laughs> as they got close to each other, but then Albo failed because he didn't bite it off and he pulled away and all the stuff that had been conglomerating in his <laughs> mouth was left hanging out of Denise's mouth. I didn't see whether she then ate it or not, though. No, I don't think she did. I don't think she did, but I found, I it, I found it quite highly entertaining. Did you see that, though? Like, I thought it was all very impressive as they're getting closer and wondering whether they're <laughs> going to kiss at the end of it. And then he pulled out at the last minute and the whole glob of spaghetti came out 
and used spaghetti, Catalina, was left hanging out of her mouth. Yes, I think that's right. But I think there was contact. But I'm not worried about the contact. Used spaghetti <laughs> was left spaghetti hanging out right. of her mouth. Okay, okay. I don't mind giving somebody a, a peck on the lips or on the cheek, but I'm not eating their used spaghetti. <laughs> I'm feeling you are very uh, germophobic, maybe. <laughs> well, no, no, don't suggest I've got an illness. I'm just, I, you know, I just wouldn't want to then gobble it down. I'm oh. sure she didn't. I'm sure she didn't. That I, is great. I, no, the, she the, didn't. I, the, I can confirm that. The, but for anyone who might be interested, look it up because it is Yeah, the, well, the clip cuts out before she eats it. That, see, we, we need to get onto the yeah, Studio okay. 10 about All this. Right. I need that. That's the buried lead. I need to know whether she ended up eating... Elbows used spaghetti. Let's get to the bottom of it. It's uh, been thoroughly entertaining chatting to you today, PBO. Thanks for having me back. Good to chat again. You've been listening to another episode of The Professor and The Hack. Thank you for listening. <laughs>